Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Many would look at the last part of Colossians chapter 4 and say, well, there's not much there. It just looks like a bunch of salutations, greetings, and commendations, and conclusion. Well, if you've been watching too much MTV, you might think so. Or if you were planning the next Super Bowl Sunday or the church lock-in, maybe so. But this church at Colossae was excited to get this whole epistle from Paul and have someone stand and read the whole thing from beginning to end to them. And they wanted to hurry over to Laodicea and get the, apostle, the epistle that was written to them and have that one read to them. The reading of God's word should be very precious and the explaining of it should be very precious. Every word of God is pure. The Bible tells us that in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. All scripture, including the last 12 verses of Colossians, were inspired by God and are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So I hope you believe that as we come. We've enjoyed many delightful meals from the smorgasbord of Colossians. If you go back and consider, and the human mind is so pitifully weak, we have to meet every week and be reminded of things that we should remember. There were precious messages in these first chapters, but we're past them now. We come to the conclusion, and let's see if there's anything here for us as well. Our God is a personal God. I am. As Brother Eric just mentioned a few moments ago in singing that song, is a father of the fatherless. And he is a particularly caring judge of the widow. He is a personal God. He does not deal with men in numbers and groups so much as he does deal with them individually. He is the head of his churches but you can go and read about the church in the book of Revelation at Thyatira that had a prophetess named Jezebel and see how he makes a distinction in that church between her children, the ones following her, and those that had not known the depths of Satan. He said, I have no more burden to put upon you. The Lord makes a difference even in his assemblies. He's a personal God, so we're gonna read some names. Women, I'm sorry that these are all men. But I'm not very sorry, because God made that choice. But I'll remind you that there was once a woman who anointed our Lord Jesus Christ, and a complaint was made that precious money had been wasted on the anointment of Jesus. Their complaint is recorded, and her anointing of him is recorded. But most of all, his response was recorded. Wheresoever this gospel is preached in all the world, this event and what she has just done to me is going to be remembered as a memorial. These are worthies. These are men worthy enough to have the Apostle Paul mention them and so we're going to read about them. And I hope that each one of us, you and I, will examine ourselves to see if we belong in the chapter. No one outside the churches of Christ would make this chapter and most of those in the churches of Christ would not make the chapter. These are those that are exceptionally zealous. If you want to be great in the sight of the Lord for his sake, and if you want this church to be great in the sight of the Lord for his sake, we must be zealous. We must be the extreme ones that are really living for the Lord, not those 
barely making it to church, barely keeping your eyes awake. They'll have no mention of Paul here, and many of them will have no mention of Jesus Christ there. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and he will profess to them, I never knew you. Where were you all those Sundays? Where was your heart? Where were your thoughts when praise was being offered to me? Did you just enjoy singing Psalm 68? Mm -hmm. I heard you, Brother Matthew. I heard others, but I heard you. That's, that's a pretty good distance, and I rejoice. I'm not flattering you. I'm just, I heard Matthew. I enjoy that. I hope that you, I'm thankful for that little Psalter. It's not perfect because it doesn't follow the words perfectly, but it gets enough of them in there. I know what we just read. I'm able to know what psalm we're in. And to sing his praise from Psalm 68 was a blessing. I don't know any other way to sing it. And to be able to sing it concentrating on the words because the common meter is known by all men. Colossians chapter 4. Let's examine ourselves and see if we belong with Tychicus. Epaphras. Archippus, and the others that are here in this chapter. Let me read to you these verses, beginning at verse 7 of Colossians 4. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Amen. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Can you go back with me and pretend that we're in Colossae, a dark part of Europe, of Asia, Asia Minor? Darkness was there, and the Apostle Paul would write this letter to a few saints in that city who worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been preached unto the Gentiles, believed done in the world, and this little church was there. And here were some of the salutations that closed out his doctrinal and practical epistle 
as he concludes his book. I hope that you can rejoice that we are in the number of those few that pressed into the straight gate and the narrow way that leads unto life in following the Lord Jesus Christ and being part of his kingdom. I want you to notice how few there were that worked with him in the kingdom of God. It's scary, isn't it? It's frightening, it's disappointing, it's discouraging how many people get excited about this ridiculous world. Every word that I say in ridiculing this world and everything you do in it, you will say I understated when you meet Jesus Christ. So I continue to warn, but look at how few there were. Will there be some more in this assembly that do everything they can for the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of Satan? Because there's only two, there is nothing in between. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. It is totally separate, it's totally distinct. Tonight we'll look at the fact that we need to hold the line in this evil generation as the whole generation downgrades and compromises itself by every single measure by which we can measure society. We want to hold the line. Verse 7, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you. The church at Colossae would like to know what was happening to Paul. He was in prison. They cared about him. They loved him. He was a great apostle. He was the apostle of the Gentiles. They would want to know. Paul doesn't take any time writing about himself. He says, Tychicus will tell you everything there is to know. But he tells us this about the man. He is a beloved brother. Now to have that written by the Apostle Paul is pretty special. He is a beloved brother. He is a faithful minister, and he's a fellow servant in the Lord. I am not going to chase down Tychicus and show you Acts chapter 20 and the other places in the New Testament where he's shown, you'd get confused looking at the bark and all the trees. I want you to see the forest here and, be, and see its beauty, and we'll look at a few trees and point them out. That's an oak, that's a maple, that's an ash, because we're going to see their names, but we want to see what the Lord has to say about them. A beloved brother. A, love, a brother that I love very much. A beloved brother. How much does Paul tell us about his family? Not a single syllable in the Bible. Do we know he had a family? <clears throat> Did he have a sister? Did he have a nephew? Did the nephew help him on an occasion? When he was in prison, but Paul didn't ever tell us about them. Luke told us about them in the, God, in the, in the book of Acts. But what about Paul himself? He never says anything about his family. Being a Jew and a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the son of a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, he probably lost his whole family for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Since he had taken people away from their families by putting them in prison, I'm quite confident that the Lord took him away from his family. But do you know what the Bible tells us? No man has forsaken brother. That the Lord will not restore a hundredfold in this world and give you eternal life in the world to come. Do you remember when Peter said, we've forsaken all to follow you, Lord? That's when Jesus answered that way. Right. Any man who's forsaken anything for me, I'll replace it a hundredfold in this world, and I'll give him eternal life in the world to come. A brother beloved. Paul had a brother that he loved very much, and he was a faithful minister. Not all the ministers in Paul's day were faithful. Many of them weren't. Paul had to say, we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. 
In the little book to the Philippians, Paul had to say about some, they preached the gospel just to get Paul in deeper trouble in prison. How's that for a faithful minister? But here was a man that was a faithful minister. You know, every man will proclaim his own goodness. But a faithful man, who can find, is what the Bible has to say. Everyone wants to talk about how faithful they are. But a really faithful man is hard to find. Faithfulness is beautiful. Faithfulness is someone you can depend upon. Someone you can trust to do what is right. They are trustworthy. They have fidelity. They stay true to their commitments. Amen. We're going to read about a man in here who didn't. We read in the Bible about many who didn't. We read of Solomon, who wasn't faithful. We read about Jehu, who wasn't faithful. But here we've got a brother who was faithful. And Paul loved him, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Ministers love their fellow servants because there's a comradeship in serving their captain in the same office. And Paul loved this man who was a fellow servant of the Lord with him, a minister who was also serving his captain, preaching the gospel, enduring hardships, especially in this time to preach the gospel, you were going to suffer persecution. And we will today as well if we practice New Testament religion. Verse 8, much more can be said, and if you want to see more, you can look at the outline. I've got everything in there that the New Testament has to say about Tychicus, but that's enough for you right now. I want you to rejoice with Paul that at least he had one man, that he could say he was a brother beloved, he was a faithful minister, and he was a fellow servant. He wanted to serve the Lord. He didn't want to serve himself. He didn't want to build an empire. He wanted to serve the Lord. And he was a fellow servant. Whatever Paul thought was important, it was important to Tychicus. Whatever Paul said to do, Tychicus went and did it. And if you, every time you find Tychicus, he's doing what Paul needed him to do. Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose. That is, to state, to declare my state, that he might know your end to find out their estate. Because Paul wanted to know how the church at Colossae was doing. The church not only cared for a good minister like Paul, but Paul, being a good minister, cared about the state of the church even though he had many churches to worry about, he wanted to know how they were doing. If they were suffering persecution, if their hearts were right with the Lord, if they had fallen away from the truth of the gospel, he wanted to know. And so he was sending Tychicus to find that out and to comfort their hearts. A great part of the gospel preaching is to comfort. And comfort isn't a bunch of sappy storytelling. Comforting is to strengthen something. To comfort someone is to strengthen them. It's to fortify them. If you look up the word and look at its definition and its origin in our language, to comfort is to fortify, to strengthen, to help, to support someone. And so gospel preaching is to help us do that with each other until the Lord comes, to give us strength to go live another week. Reading Psalm 68 should have given you some power and strength. Amen. And that's why we get together, because we get beat down. And we come back, we're reminded that there's others getting beat down, and that the Lord is in charge of all of it, and we're really riding on the heavens with Jah. Amen. Don't tell, you know, yes, we share our little woes with each other, but they're nothing in comparison to that. That's 
Right. Nothing at all. And so there's a lot of comfort. Do you know why Paul wanted to preach at Rome? You know, men, men love to quote Romans 1, 16 so many times. I've heard it so many times that it's irritating now. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. They quote it out of con I've never heard the context preached. Never. They wouldn't dare preach it in its context because it undoes the verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. Oh, it's the power of God and the salvation? If I preach the gospel to the devil, will it save him? If I preach the gospel to an unregenerate man, will it save him? The gospel itself is not the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is a word that means good news. I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. For it, the good news, is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the good news of the power of God in saving his elect. The good news, the gospel is the good news of the wisdom of God in saving his elect. It, there is no power in the gospel. If I preach the gospel to an unsaved man, he considers it foolish and me a fool. The gospel is the power of God unto those that are saved, 1 Corinthians 1.18. To those that are lost, it's foolishness. The gospel is not preached to save an unregenerate man to life in Christ. The gospel is preached to take a regenerate man and show him the truth of salvation and what he ought to do to please his Savior. So, let's back up and read verse 15 in Romans 1. So then as much as in me is, except for the overwhelming preponderance of my ambition to preach in the jails of Rome. No. It says, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Let's back up another verse. That we may be comforted together with the mutual faith, both of you and me. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. That's what we do when we preach. We rejoice in the God that is our God that we ride upon the heavens with. Right. That he is on his white horse and we will be on our white horses behind him. That he gives power and strength unto his own and that we ought to rejoice exceedingly with our God. And we comfort one another. We come together for mutual comfort. Romans 1 is powerful. Verse 8, he says, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Then in verse 15, he says, I want to preach the gospel to you. Well, now, does, why did Paul want to preach the gospel to people with faith? Didn't he want to go preach it to people that didn't have faith? No. He said, pray for me that I might be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. If man hasn't already been given faith by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, why in the world would you want to cast the pearls of God's word before those dogs and swine? Why? Pray tell me why. Paul wouldn't ever do that. Paul didn't go to the brothels. He didn't stand in the street corners. He went into the synagogues where the scriptures were being read. And guess what his words would be? I know his opening. Do you know it? Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you 
are the words of this salvation sent. Let God be true, but every man a liar. They have corrupted the gospel. Amen. They have turned the gospel into the transubstantiated cracker of the Catholics. They think that they can turn the gospel into some powerful medium itself. The gospel is good news. It is information. And preaching the gospel is education by a teacher so that you come to know the things that are freely given to you of God. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. 2 Timothy 1.10. It doesn't bring life and immortality. God brings life and immortality. Amen. Okay, how do we get way down that road? Give me a minute to run all the way back to the fork. Okay, verse 8 of Colossians chapter 4. Do you know how we got down there? Because Paul said, I'm sending Tychicus to comfort you. He didn't say, I'm sending Tychicus to have a citywide rally. We're going to have a, a motorcycle rally. And we're going to have Harleys for Jesus. He said, I'm sending Tychicus to comfort you. Because that is a big important part of the gospel. If you've prepared for today, you're getting comforted right now. Amen. You're getting stirred up in your soul, not by my lack of eloquence, hair lip, and every other problem that impairs my speech, but by the word of God. Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we read a lot of it, we preach a lot of it, and we sing a lot of it. Amen. And you should be getting stirred up in your souls. I want to serve that God. I want to live for that God. I want to be a fellow laborer under the kingdom of God. And so we go out of this place the better for it if the Lord is merciful. To comfort your hearts. We got to keep moving, brethren. Don't ask me to go down any more of those side paths. Verse 9. With Onesimus, Tychicus, first man that we read about, a beloved brother, now Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. He doesn't call him a faithful minister because we don't have any evidence that Onesimus was a minister. Well, he was a minister of Philemon because the word minister means servant. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? Onesimus. Tychicus and Onesimus went from Rome back to Colossae to deliver this epistle and the epistle to the Ephesians and a private letter. And the private letter was being taken to Philemon. Did Onesimus consider that personal letter in his hand important to him? Yes. Onesimus was a runaway servant. Onesimus, from what I can tell by combining, combining all facts known about him, was already a convert in the church at Colossae, who is one of you, sent to Rome on business by Philemon, likely. He decided he didn't want to go back and serve that master anymore. Paul gets him and converts him from the folly of his way and writes a personal note to Philemon. I've met Onesimus who ran away from you. I know he hasn't been profitable to you. He's been an unfaithful servant but he's now faithful. He's very faithful to me, and if you don't want him, I will take him. And then he lays about 10 more reasons on Philemon why he better take him back. And, and Philemon is just one. If you, listen, for, to ever take, to ever take persuasive writing or persuasive speech and not use the book of Philemon, 
It's just the fools of this world thinking they know what they talk about. Go read the little book of Philemon. You'll see the most powerful, persuasive speech possible in a few simple sentences as Paul lays the burden of responsibility upon Philemon to accept this runaway servant back. And so here goes Onesimus, and look what Paul calls them, a faithful and beloved brother. Now the whole church would have reason to be pretty upset, wouldn't they, until they got to this verse, a faithful and beloved brother. Can you imagine Onesimus walking in? And there's his master, and he backs up because he's always feared his master like a good servant always should. And his master looks at him and wonders what he's doing there. And he comes and he says, would you read this? It's from Paul. And he whips that thing open and the, the tears come down his face and he grabs Onesimus. And that's the religion of Jesus Christ. Right. There is forgiveness in the religion of Jesus Christ. And they embrace and they're one together again. And then the epistle is read and that little servant, I wanna mention two things about Onesimus, a servant the lowest level of society to a bad servant. Wicked and low class. He gets his name mentioned in Colossians because I want to tell you something. In Jesus Christ, there is neither bond nor free. And so Tychicus is up before the congregation reading down through it and he gets to verse 9 with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. And that is the mighty apostle to the Gentiles that wrote those words. And the whole church would look around at that little servant that was a runaway servant and feel pretty warm toward him because he'd been forgiven by the apostle Paul. And if Paul could forgive him, who was the hardest working man that ever walked the New Testament lands and who said, if a man does not work, neither should that man be allowed to eat. If that man said, forgive him and that he was a faithful and beloved brother, he's faithful and beloved to me. Is that precious? Onesimus. Do you, know, do you know what kind of class distinctions there are in the church of Jesus Christ? The saved and the unsaved. Right. And hopefully we're all the saved. That's the goal. But there are no class distinctions. God doesn't care of what nation color you are whatsoever or your economic status in life. It's blown out in Christ Jesus. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Tychicus and Onesimus will tell you everything that's going on with my court proceedings and how I'm doing here and, and the members of Caesar's household that have been converted that are on their way to Britain. Oh, brethren, pray for me because I have, I, have, I have found a whole lot more information on our mother country of Britain if you can claim Britain as your mother country and Wales and, and Scotland and Ireland and their conversion to Christianity before Tiberius Caesar died in the historians of the Roman Empire. Before Tiberius Caesar. I think I remember reading about Tiberius Caesar in the Bible. Could we have? Yeah. Was it in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar that John the Baptist began preaching? But the man only reigned for 22 years. Are you trying to tell me that the gospel was in the British Isles within five years of Jesus dying? Amen. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. 
The first Christian nation was Britain. First nation to have its king claim Christianity, Britain. Much more to be said on that subject. There is an advantage. We live in a day where in the past, anyone who had information on this subject would have no way of finding or contacting anyone else who had information on that subject. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. We now have an internet where you can put out information that you have from history books that are very rare about the history of Britain and anyone in the world can find it who happens to be interested in that subject. And so you combine, there is an explosion of information, 99.9% .9 of it is worthless and it isn't doing anyone any good, but it sure is exciting to get to 2 Timothy 4.22 and read about two people there named Pudens and Claudia and wonder who they were and to find out that there are many records from different sources of who they were. I, gotta, I can't go there, but I, I want to sometimes. Some of you have already heard some of it and I mentioned some of it last Sunday and it's just encouraging to know that when the Bible says believed on in the world, it was true. Amen. It was true. He was believed on in the world. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. He moves now to three Jews, and they're saluting the saints at Colossae. They're not, they're not going to travel with Tychicus and Onesimus. I mean, why would Tychicus and Onesimus need to salute them since they're carrying the epistle? Now we move to some that are staying with Paul. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Aristarchus was from Macedonia. He met the apostle Paul and stayed with him for the rest of his life and he ended up in prison with them. Are you that committed? Are you committed enough to the Lord Jesus Christ that you are so committed that if anyone else is going to prison, you're probably gonna to go to prison with them because you're as committed as anyone else is committed? Aristarchus was. Paul would say, not my fellow servant, my fellow prisoner. He had a comrade in the ministry, Tychicus. He had a comrade in prison, Aristarchus. I'm thankful for Aristarchus that my brother Paul had someone in prison with him that he could have a partner for prayer, a partner for quoting scripture, and a partner for singing. Because Paul liked to sing with someone, he liked to sing duets when he was in prison. Because he did it with Silas in Acts chapter 16. I'm thankful for Aristarchus. Are we committed enough to be worthy of such a mention? He salutes you. What's a salutation in the Bible? It's a greeting. It's an expression of goodwill to someone, and when it's coming from a saint, it's done in the name of the Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let God be magnified. These are salutations from the Bible. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. Barnabas had a sister. Her name was Mary. Her son was John Mark. When Peter escaped from prison with the help of the angels in Acts chapter 12, he went down the street to a woman's house named Mary that was the sister of Barnabas that had a son named John Mark. And that's where he went in. A little girl named Rhoda, servant girl, came to the gate, didn't let him in for a while, but eventually did. And that's Barnabas, Mary, and John Mark. Paul's first evangelistic trip, he took Barnabas. The nephew came along, John Mark. You can read about it in Acts chapter 13. By verse 13, though, John Mark wimped out. John Mark went AWOL. John Mark turned back in the day of battle. John Mark put his hand to the plow and quit. 
John Mark was a disgrace to the ministry. And he went back. And Paul and Barnabas continued without him. The second evangelistic trip that Paul and Barnabas intended to go on, Barnabas, because he was family, remember that uh, blood is thicker than water? How shameful. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark again. And Paul said, no way. And the Bible tells us that there was a sharp contention between the two of them over John Mark because Paul didn't want him because Paul was diligent, faithful, and hardworking, and he didn't want someone like John Mark with him. So Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark. Is that how things ended in the New Testament? Oh, not at all. John Mark was recovered from his disgraceful departure from the ministry in Acts chapter 13 and recovered so much so that in 2 Timothy, Paul says, Mark is very profitable to me in the ministry. So much so that you have a gospel that follows Matthew and precedes Luke, written by the guy. There's value in these names. I want you to know about Marcus. I want you to see what's in parentheses and to love the kingdom of God. Is there room in the kingdom of God for failures? Repentant failures. Yes. yes, there is. Look at what's in parentheses. Touching whom, concerning this guy that I just mentioned, you have received some commandments. If he come unto you, if Mark happens to be traveling around and stops into Colossae for a visit, you receive him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Well, maybe you don't think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. You can all think it's wonderful because your pastor thinks it's wonderful. Touching whom ye received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. He's faithful for me, and he's profitable for me in the ministry. He writes the Gospel of Mark. The Bible says that a minister had better be blameless, he better be vigilant. Was he a vigilant man? No, for a moment, but then recovered, and then vigilant, because Paul wouldn't call any man profitable that wasn't very vigilant. And look what it says. If you see him traveling, and he stops in, you receive him. You've already received commandments on this matter, but I'm telling you again, in case you forgot, Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. I hope that's comforting to you. Verse 11, we've got two Jews mentioned, Aristarchus, and Marcus. Now a third one. And Jesus, which is called Justice. If, we, if you have in your New Testament a man called Jesus, which is an English word, which came to us from the Greek language, which was a Hebrew name. What was that Hebrew name? What was this man called? Joshua. Joshua. We know that by just looking at an English dictionary. But you can go to Acts chapter 7 where Stephen preached about Moses' successor. And Moses' successor in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 was called Jesus. And Moses' successor in Hebrews chapter 4 was called Jesus. Because Joshua, Hebrew name, taken into Greek, then into English, is Jesus. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, history tells us that Christians wouldn't call their children that name. That makes sense to you. Does it make sense to you? It sure makes sense to me. If I had a son that I had named before I met Jesus Christ, 
and had named him Joshua, and he was going to be pronounced the same as my Lord. No, no mother ever called a baby Jesus. Do you understand? Does everybody understand? We all understand language enough, and you're not offended with that, are you? You know, Joshua, Jehoshua, if you want to get the full, the full name and not a shortened version, Jehoshua, Jehovah is salvation. He was named Joshua. We say it as Jesus, but saints wouldn't call their children that name. They changed them. And so what was this man called instead of Jesus? Justice, a Roman name. If taken with meaning, what kind of character trait did the man have? He was a just man. Justice. Who were of the circumcision? We've got three Jews here, Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus, which is called Justice, who were of the circumcision. These three Jews, these only, are my fellow workers who are Jews unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Now, if you say, where does it say that it's only the Jews he's talking about? Well, let me ask you a question. Was Luke a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul to the kingdom of God? Was Timothy a worker? Yes, but what, of what sort was Timothy's father? A Greek. So he's not mentioned here. But there were only three Jews. And, oh, so you say, is this point important? Why are you belaboring it? Watch. Watch. Three Jews, they only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Where in the world was the first pope? Why wasn't the first pope coming down to visit Paul in prison? Why wasn't the first pope there comforting him? Why wasn't the first pope helping Paul? Where was Peter? He wasn't in Rome. Who went to the city of Rome? Paul did. Paul did. You know, if Peter was the first pope, he should have been there taking an interest in Paul's situation in prison. But do you know what Paul wants to tell you? He wants to tell you, I've got three of the circumcision that are here. Now, was Peter circumcised? Are you Peter was circumcised, but there was no one else circumcised there. I've got three circumcised fellow workers in the kingdom of God, and there are their names. And there isn't a Peter. The Catholics want to put Peter on the, the seat of the Bishop of Rome as the first pastor of the Roman church and the first pope of the Catholic church, and we've got Paul there and a church there, but we don't have Peter. And we've got three other Jews there, but Paul wants us to know there's no Peter. There might be a Mark. Now, if they want to make Mark the first pope, we'll go to the next verse or some other passage, but Peter wasn't. Now, you might not appreciate that, but I find that there's one billion people on earth today that think Peter was the first pope. and that he ruled in the city of Rome. They got a big statue there, and if you want to take a vacation, it's very cheap right now in US dollars, you can fly over there to Rome and go in there and kiss the same toe that everyone else has kissed until it's, gone, it's worn the foot away. Verse 12, now he's gonna move away from the circumcision, isn't he? He's gonna move into some Gentiles. Epaphras, who is one of you? Now, what kind of a position did Epaphras have in the church at Colossae? We've already been told in chapter one, he was one of their pastors. He was one of the elders there. They say pastors, plural? Yes, of course they had multiple elders. What kind of a New Testament did they have at this stage? There were apostles, there were prophets, there were evangelists, and there were pastors and teachers. There were four offices necessary to have a New Testament church and very much revelation of truth because you didn't have a New Testament. 
So there were multiple elders at these churches. When you read about a multiple, multiplicity of elders at these churches, don't get too excited. Because by the time we get to the book of Revelation and John's writing those seven churches of Asia, he writes to the angel, singular, of each church. But they had, we, we don't have apostles any longer. We don't have prophets, we don't have evangelists, and we now have a New Testament that is able to make the men of God perfect. Is that what it says? It's able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Titus, I've left you in the island of Crete to take care of everything that's needed there. You don't need a multiplicity or duplicity of anything. You've got the word of God. You've got my apostolic commission. Now go do what you're supposed to do. Titus, one man in a whole island. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. Here's a true servant of Christ. Saluteth you. He's going to stay with Paul. He's not going back with these guys. He's He's sending a message of salutation. But look at what Paul has to say about him and his ministerial work. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That is, a, that is a verse that anyone in the ministry and anyone aspiring to the ministry should lay hold of and understand that is the work of the ministry. When we go into Acts chapter 6, why were there deacons ever ordained? because we needed flattering titles for older men to keep them there, to get them on the front row, to have a little committee that could ride on the pulpit? Why do we have deacons? Because the apostles said, these tables have become too much. We do not want to be taken away from the word of God and prayer. prayer. Amen. The word of God and prayer. That's what deacons ought to do. They have, a, they have abused their authority. Most churches don't need any. The church of Jerusalem didn't have any until there were too many widows. But Baptist churches today, it's like a Boy Scout club. You've got the Eagle Scout, and then you need some other scouts to be given some badges of honor so that they can feel important in church. So that when their obit is in the paper, he was a deacon at so-and-so church. You know, they've got 14 members and seven deacons. It's incredible what they'll do. And the deacon committee, you know, sits and rules on the pastor. If that, oh, every time the pastor preaches, he looks down, oh, there's, there's the deacons. But more, he's, there's one thing he's more afraid of than the deacons that he looks down at, and that's the wives of the deacons. When he catches a look from the wife of a deacon, he's in trouble. He needs to get his resume out, polished up, and out in, the, out in other circles. That is nowhere found in the Bible. A servant of Christ. How do we get off on that? Because a man of God should be committed to these things. Word of God and prayer. And this tells what kind of prayer. Laborious prayer. Laboring in prayer. Hard work praying. And do you know what? All real praying is hard work. Have you, have, do you all find that to be true? Yes. That praying is hard work? Yes. Does your mind want to wander when you start praying? Yes. And you got to keep... What did Jesus say? Watch! What did we read in Colossians already? Watch! A sentry on a wall. A sentry at a military camp. Whew. You know what I'm talking about, that feeling? You drift, you're drifting off. Maybe most of you have that when you're at the wheel. You know when you're at the wheel and you almost drift off? You're just asleep and you... I gotta stay awake. I gotta stay awake. And you know, you're praying and your mind wants to wander. 
Lord, help me keep my mind on the task at hand. It's wrestling. Or am I speaking a language that none of you can understand and I need an interpreter? Laboring, but not just laboring, laboring fervently in prayer. When you labor in prayer and find your mind wandering, don't be discouraged. Look at Peter, James, and John. They couldn't stay awake with them after three warnings on the most important night of prayer in their lives. But they learned the lesson, and the Lord gave them the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. You can get better at prayer by exercising yourself unto godliness. Don't you get better at everything by exercise? Does the Bible talk about exercising yourself unto godliness? What is exercise? Is it doing basic movements over and over and over again? until they become second nature and you get stronger at them? Oh. Laboring fervently for you in prayers. That's a minister. That ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And that's his prayer request. We already had this prayer request expanded, so let's read it. It'll help us understand it here. Back to chapter 1. Who was the great pattern for apostolic prayer was Paul. Don't, every epistle, when you open it up, doesn't he say praying always for you? Every epistle? Just about every epistle? Did he have a lot of people to pray for? Praying always. Making mention of you always in my prayers. Notice him expanding this prayer request. Remember Colossians 1, beginning at verse 9, is a nine-verse sentence. But we're only going to take the first three verses. For this cause we also, this is Paul and Timothy and how they prayed, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And here's their desire. This is a prayer request. This is what we should pray for ourselves and for each other. This is what every minister should pray for his people. This is what I pray for you and want to pray for you more. That to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, mm -hmm. strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Amen. I know it's a long sentence to keep track of all those words. You can cheat. The next time you pray, open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1 and read it to the Lord. Amen. Memorize it. That is that you might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Just opened up a little bit by our brother Paul. That's a prayer request, isn't it? Did, would you like Paul praying that for you? It's a wonderful three verses. Let's come back to Colossians chapter 4 and Epaphras, who Paul witnessed praying that way for them. Now laboring is staying at it and working hard to keep your concentration. It's laborious work. It's tiring. And then he did it fervently. His heart was in it. He was passionate about it. You know this, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for the food, big deal. That's not how apostles prayed. They prayed with passion. You don't pray rote words like that with passion. Is your heart in it and your affections in it. It was for Epaphras. Verse 13, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you. And that shows that great zeal and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. If you read anything of history or go look at a good Bible map, you'll find those three cities, boom, right together on a map. 
in what we would now call Turkey, very close to each other. So this man, being a servant of one of the churches, would know about the other churches and prayed for everyone, had a zeal for all the saints in those three places that God had brought into his path. He wasn't praying. The Bible doesn't point out that he has a great zeal for churches all over the place, but for the churches that God had brought to him by his geographical location there at Laodicea. We go on to verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. More greetings. Now, have we just had the word salutation defined for us? Yes. Yes. Some it says salute you, and some it says greet you. Right. So you just had the word salute defined for you. Amen. To salute a person is to greet a person. Because when did you use salute this week? Uh, well, maybe someone did. But that's not the salute we're talking about. The salute we're talking about is a verbal expression of goodwill, which is a greeting. And so we know what the word means just by using our Bibles. Luke, the beloved physician, do we have an, a, a gospel by his name? Mm -hmm. Yes. Do we, did he write another book? Mm -hmm. Acts. Mm -hmm. He wrote to Theophilus. He was, not a, he was not a Jew. We know that because Paul excluded him from his short list up above. He was a Gentile. Was he always with Paul? He was with Paul as much as he possibly could be. He said he had accompanied all the way from the beginning. Remember the beginning of Luke chapter 1? We were, we were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He served the Lord Jesus Christ. He was around. He saw a lot. And he's called the beloved physician. When you can meet a doctor that's also a Christian, it's a good blessing. And we've got a couple that this church knows about. Then they're, they're Baptists. And I had been told by someone that they're Presbyterian, and they're not Presbyterians. I... I got hung out to dry in there. Not for long, though. But uh, they're Baptists. Dr. Kendall and Dr. Kimmerlin that are on Woodruff Road are Baptists. And if you want to go to some Baptist doctors that will call the drugs they give you poison, every time, every time I've ever heard them give a prescription, here's your, go get your poison. And they pray. And they're Baptists. But anyway, Luke was a beloved physician. I want you to know from this that it doesn't say Luke the saint, Luke the beloved brother, Luke the beloved physician. Because a man's converted doesn't mean he has to change his career. In fact, the Bible says, abide in the calling wherewith you, wherein you were called, 1 Corinthians 7.20. What was Paul's trade? He was a tent maker. Was tent making incompatible with being an apostle? No, he did them both. Is being a doctor incompatible with being a Christian? No, he did them both. He's the beloved physician. When you can minister to a person's body and to his soul at the same time, you've got an advantage. You understand a whole lot more. Because the Bible says a whole lot of things in the book of Proverbs, doesn't it, about physical ailments being caused by spiritual problems. I enjoy meeting Dr. Kendall and Dr. Kimmerlin. You can talk about anything that you wouldn't be able to talk about with many doctors who went to a school that thinks we came from monkeys. They know the stuff they give. They know they're just practicing. The last time I was in there, I can't remember which child I was in there with. He said, listen, I think it, it was Daniel. Daniel, we don't know what we're doing. And now I love a doctor that'll say that. Don't, don't you love a doctor that'll say that? We don't know what we're doing. But he goes, here's what we're going to do. And you're going to start with A. If this happens, we're going to go to this B. If this happens, we're going to go to C. Now, if we go to B, two things are going to happen. There's two possibilities. And we're going to have to go to D or E. It was awesome. 
He said, this is all we know how to do. Start working down through our possibilities. Now, I like a doctor when he tells me that because I already know that. Why doesn't he admit it? Don't we all know that? They're practicing medicine on us. Right. But when they'll admit it, and then they'll admit it in the name of the Lord, it's, it's wonderful. I was, I was in there once, and they had a magazine that they had put out for the patients to read, and it was a, it was a what is it, is it Autobahn? That's the Bird Watchers magazine. Is that the name of it? Well, it had, a, it had an article in there about evolution. And so, I, well, anyway, I was kind. I just, doctor, I, I'm shocked that I would be sitting in your office and reading an art. He said, give me that thing. Deep sixed it right there. You know, I like a doctor like that. Most of them are appealing back to professors that they had that taught them evolution to solve your bodily problems. Do you want that kind of thinking going on? I'd rather have a man that fears God loves the Bible and is a Baptist is a Baptist I was with David at a funeral and he was over on the other side of the room and I thought he was a Presbyterian and I couldn't wait to for my next visit with a child so that I could ask him about going to a funeral and making sure that he knew that there was they had never buried a Presbyterian that all Presbyterians became Baptists at a funeral you understand I've been through that before but he straightened me out quick they're Baptists. He goes to Hampton Park Baptist Church. Okay, Colossians chapter 4, Luke, the beloved physician. There's a, a wonderful companion that Paul had out there in the middle of that storm at sea, 14 days without seeing the sun. 14 days without seeing the sun, the apostle, that Luke said, all hope was gone. Paul started praying, and Paul delivered them. I was, in talking to my family last night, you know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered together. Well, Paul couldn't find a second one in that case. Luke writes and tells you that he, <laughs> he was beyond, oh, he thought it was, there was no hope to be delivered. But the Apostle Paul, a vision helped, didn't he? Remember the dream? Yeah. An angel stood by me and said, not a man's going to be lost. Right. Luke was always there with Paul. And here he is with him still. And when you read to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Luke is still serving the Apostle Paul as the last chapter that Paul writes. The doctor was still there. Are we going to still be there? Amen. Are we going to be there when the Lord Jesus Christ comes? Amen. If the Lord tarries, are we going to be with each other? You younger ones, are you going to stay like the beloved physician, Dr. Luke? Demas. Do we know anything about Demas? Demas was faithful here. But the last chapter Paul wrote, the chapter before he died, he said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now who's in love with this present world? Who's in love with their business, their body, their marriage, their family, their house, and all the other frivolous activities of this ridiculously vain life? Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. When the going got tough, the softies quit, and Demas quit. He loved the present world. To stay with Paul in prison and to be a fellow prisoner like Aristarchus was too much. To hang around like Luke and to suffer two weeks of seasickness of the highest magnitude was too much. He quit for this present world. There's an easier way to make a living. There's a more comfortable way. I still believe there's a God, but there's a more comfortable way to do it than the strict way that you're doing it. You know, I was just told by someone in this assembly it got to me by word of mouth of someone that's visited us 
that we regard rather highly that said we're too strict well so be it when I read the Word of God and I see the Lord Jesus Christ he wanted you to know one thing about his kingdom the only way in was a very strict way and if you don't want to go in the straight gate in the narrow way then you don't want to be part of his kingdom brethren tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about that are you part of his kingdom or not Demas hath forsaken me having loved this present world as 2nd Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 Demas bailed verse 15 Paul tells the church at Colossae the whole church salute the brethren which are in Laodicea make sure that you two are getting along well and you give them a greeting from me as well and Nymphus and the church which is in his house that is not a woman's name that's a man's name and there was another church meeting in his house you don't have to meet in a house to be a church there were only a few churches and houses in the New Testament they were in all sorts of places if we're gonna look at this verse and say that a church needs to be in a house and there are people that believe that these days just like there are people that believe you ought to pull the electrical wiring out of your house so that you don't have any of the modern inventions of this evil society we don't want to be like them either we want to walk a balance of God's Word Amen. if we're gonna to have to have house churches then we ought to have school churches because in Acts chapter 18 Paul was meeting in the school of one Tyrannus if that's not good enough for you then what about the verse that says the apostles that were full of the Holy Ghost they met in an upper room so since we're on the ground level we're blowing it right now we need to get ourselves an upper room but I go to Hebrews 11:38, where it says that the real faithful ones wandered in the dens and caves of the earth so we need to have a cave church let's all go meet in a cave and we did have some illustrious brethren that met in caves but meeting in a cave isn't going to get us any closer to God and it isn't any apostolic tradition they met anywhere they could without being persecuted where they could get that many people together and if it was a small church and all they had was a home why not meet in a home but they'd meet anywhere Paul did most of his preaching in synagogues Jesus went into synagogues formal church buildings not authorized by the Old Testament picked up from Babylon synagogues because guess what it doesn't matter where you get together to read the Word of God and to sing and to pray and so Jesus went to synagogues because that's where the people were enough on that the church which is in his house salute those brethren over there at Laodicea and salute the little church that's in the house of Nymphus and when this epistle is read among you doesn't this tell us what a church service ought to include because yep. we have a whole bunch of epistles when this epistle is read among you cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans when you're done with it carry it over to Laodicea seven miles away and when you're there grab one that I wrote them and bring it back and read it here at Colossae and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea we don't have the epistle that was from Laodicea that they went and got we don't have one that Paul wrote to them or that anyone else wrote to them we don't have it we don't have the book of Jasher do we when you read Joshua chapter 10 and verse 13 does it make reference to a book called Jasher we don't have it is there a book in numbers referred to called the book of the wars of the Lord yes there is we don't have it Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs we've only got 400 where are the other 2,600 Solomon wrote 1,005 songs we've got one of them where's the other 1,004 how do we get the one that we did 
How do we know that there isn't one among the 1,004 that would be better than the one we've got? How do we know that of the 400 Proverbs we've got, there's not some of the other 2,600 that would be better than the ones we've got? How do we know that? It is a matter of faith. 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 Do you know how the Bible came together with 66 books? No, you don't, and neither do I, except this answer, by the providence of God. Amen. The books just came together. They fell by the wayside, and the ones that God wanted stayed. And for a, for a, couple, for a while of time, for a number of years, there were debates over the various books, and they just kept falling away, kept falling away, until there were 66 left, 27 of the New Testament. The Old Testament was pretty well established by Israel and the scribes, and Jesus' blessing upon what the scribes had done at his, by his time. But the New Testament just came together. It's one of the most amazing things in the world. There was no council that sat down and said, how many options do we have? And a learned scribe rises and says, we have 275 books and scraps of books written by apostles and men that they ordained. Okay, number one, all the yeas stand. They didn't do that. Now, there were church councils later, but guess what? The churches of Christ had already figured the 66 out, and all they did was confirm it. The Catholics have 75. We have 66, and it's by the providence of God. We look at the providence of God and see what God did, some just disappearing and others staying, and them bearing fruit. And wherever they went, it bore fruit. So we don't have the epistle to the Laodiceans, but we've got the one to the Colossians. and we have the King James Bible. You don't need to understand textual history or be a textual critic. We believe the King James Bible is the word of God by faith and by fruit because all the others fell away, didn't bear fruit, and this one did. They died. They just died of natural causes because they were natural books and the spiritual book lived on for 400 years. You be waiting. If the Lord will tarry for eight more years, and I hope he doesn't, but if he does, we ought to have a 400-year celebration about the Bible that God's preserved. God blessed it. It's born fruit. So we've got two main families of Bibles in the earth. The Bibles of the martyrs, that's the text this one came from, and the Bibles of the martyr makers. Which one do you want to read? It's that simple. And we believe it by faith. God promised he was going to inspire and preserve his word. If God promised to inspire and preserve it, then we should just open our eyes, remembering he never called the wise in this earth to be his saints. He called the little children, and he said, believe me, if you don't have faith like a little child, then you're not good enough for the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm a little child. Amen. I am not going to waste my time reading the dusty books of men attacking the word of God. I'm going to believe the word of God. I'm going to look, where's there a Bible that when people have read it, believed it, and preached it, there was godly spiritual fruit that followed from it? Right here. I've got it. I'm that simple. God inspired it. God preserved it. We've got it. All we have to do is open our eyes and see it. The other versions have glaring internal contradictions that say to little people like us, I am not the word of God. I am not the word of God. And this one stands the test of time. Just like the epistle of Laodicea died. The epistle to the Colossians lived. And here we have it. 2,000 years later. No one even knows what the epistle of Laodicea of Laodicea looks like. It just, it just disappeared. We don't ask a bunch of questions. 
Do you have to ask a bunch of questions about creation, or do you believe the first couple verses of the Bible? Amen. Save yourself some time. Save yourself some faith-destroying work. You don't need scientific evidence for creation. If you need scientific evidence for creation, what kind of faith do you have? All I need is Genesis 1-1 and childlike faith. Daniel, do you believe that God created everything in six days out of nothing? See? Your faith is equal to mine. Maybe greater. Do you believe it a lot? Would you die for it? Childlike faith. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and that's what we believe. If God makes a promise, we don't question it. When God said to Abraham, I know you're an old man, but you're going to have a son. You know what the Bible says? He considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't analyze his reproductive ability, nor Sarah's reproductive ability, because there wasn't anything to analyze. They had both died. The grasshopper was in a casket, and Sarah's womb was in a casket. Do you understand that? Amen. He didn't consider it. Why go into those questions? You know what they want to ask us? Well, where was the Bible in 1610? If the King James Bible is the Word of God, where was the Bible in 1610? I don't live in 1610. I can't see 1610. I don't know anything about 1610, and who cares where the Bible was in 1610? I've got the Bible now, and it's got God's stamp of approval upon it. Abraham didn't say, Lord, the grasshopper's dead. I can't do that. What does the Bible say? He considered not. And I give you those words as valuable words. When you've got a promise of God, believe it, and don't do natural considering about how God's going to get it done. Because if you do that, you're destroying your faith. True faith says God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It's wonderful to believe things that way. And those are the people, God reveals what he will to those kind of people. If we leave that track and try to figure things out, prove things, defend things by natural means, God's going to close our eyes off like he has everyone else that goes to seminary to prove the word of God. Let's stay little children. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus said, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. I want to stay that babe so that he'll keep revealing things to us. Are you all committed to that as well? Amen. It's not because we want to be stupid. We want to be wise God's way. We want to be wise with his wisdom. Listen, he wrote this book. We believe it. That settles it. We have the answers to every question the universe can throw at us. Right here in the word of God. Mm -hmm. And we've got childlike faith, and so we just rest there. Don't ask me about the epistle to the Laodiceans. Was anybody converted by it? Was anybody helped by it? Don't ask me. We don't consider those things. What we've got is the word of God because he preserved it. Amen. He said, the word of the Lord endureth forever. Guess what that says about the epistle? To the Laodiceans. It wasn't the word of the Lord like this is the word of the Lord. What is a gospel service to include reading the Holy Scriptures? Do you know what would happen in most churches today if a man got up and read the whole book of Colossians? Come on, it's a short book. How many would be asleep before he got to the end? In most churches today. I mean, if you didn't have a drummer up there with hair down to his waist, pierced in 14 different places and painted three colors and was trying to beat his drums for Jesus, and if you had somebody reading the epistle to the Colossians, how many could stay awake? But this is what a New Testament service ought to look like. Get that epistle that was written by a God-appointed man with the very words of God and read it. And the Bible also tells us, and they read it distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. 
and people ought to celebrate when that happens. That's cause for celebration, not rapping for Jesus. Verse 17, and to Archippus, say to Archippus, look at this, this is very interesting here. Paul told the church, say, you church members, remind, warn, and exhort your pastor this way. Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. You know, we're not told anymore about Archippus. There's no commendation. There's no blessing put upon him. It's just church. Remind your pastor, remind one of your ministers, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Because notice, where was their main minister? With, with Paul, Epaphras. And he was going to be with Paul. So the message was, Archippus, take heed to the ministry that you've been given. Now do we know that that's something all ministers are supposed to do? 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine continue in them doing both things taking heed to yourself and taking heed to the doctrine for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee that's the warning to every minister say to Archippus take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that thou fulfill it it's a sober calling and sober men better be soberly fulfilling it verse 18 the salutation by the hand of me Paul other men would write these epistles. You may have a subscript in your Bible. My little subscript says, written from Rome to the Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus. I don't care if it was Tychicus or Luke. It's not inspired scripture, but the Apostle Paul would pick up the pen at the very end and lay down his salutation and put his Paul there so that they knew where it was coming from. It's Paul, and what was his salutation? Grace be with you. But before he said that this time, isn't he, isn't he a meek man? Remember my bonds. He didn't talk about all his trials. He didn't talk about his scourgings. He didn't talk about anything except, remember my bonds. Grace be with you. And brethren, without free grace, we're all lost. Grace be with you. Without free grace every day, we'd be lost all over again, wouldn't we? Grace be with you. Amen.